Today is Epiphany Sunday. We all right? Today is Epiphany Sunday. Uh, the word epiphany comes from the Greek word meaning to reveal. Have you ever had an epiphany? An aha moment? Am I okay? Yeah? All right. You ever had an aha moment where something was revealed to you or you realized something? Typically, it's something that you probably should have known already. I've had several of those this past couple weeks. First of all, I had an epiphany that most people did not try to move in December. <laughs> I had this epiphany as I was loading a moving truck in about seven degree weather. And when it's single digits, you should not be moving. That's just what I learned. Related to the cold, I had an epiphany that 12 packs of cans of Diet Cherry Coke do not do well in that same cold. I left two 12-packs of Diet Cherry Coke sitting in the car, and uh, last week when we went to go to church, uh, we found Diet Cherry Coke icicles everywhere. It was on the ceiling, it was on the windows, it was on the console, it was all over my wife's seat. Um, then I had another epiphany, and that is that if you have icicles of Diet Cherry Coke in your car, and then you turn the heat on and drive somewhere, you get Diet Cherry Coke raining down from above on you. This, by the way, led to one more epiphany. That if you forget to take said 12 packs of Diet Cherry Coke out of your car after it's already been all over the place, they will continue to pop and get everywhere. Um, the next time we got in our car on Monday, there was just a layer of Diet Cherry Coke ice on the bottom on the seat that my wife had to put her feet on to drive anywhere. Probably we should have figured it out earlier, but it took us a little bit. We celebrate Epiphany today, not because of our aha moments, but because of one particular story where wise men come to reveal to us a lot about Jesus. This story, however, suffers from one of the most dangerous diseases that any bi biblical text can catch. It's called over-familiarity. We become too over-familiar with a story, too over-familiar with a passage, and we fail to see the richness of what the Bible is giving to us. So today, let's take a look at this all-too-familiar story and, and break it down a little bit and see what else is in there that maybe we can learn today. The text begins by saying that the wise men come after um, Jesus is born in Bethlehem to Jerusalem. I'm sorry if this comes to a shock of, for you or ruins some of your nativity sets. But the Bible is incredibly clear that the wise men don't come that first night Jesus is born. They come to Jerusalem after he's born and then they've still got to get, find out where to go and get to Bethlehem. There's no way. There's a reason why we're celebrating Epiphany a number of weeks after Christmas, because at least it would have taken them a couple more weeks to get there. And in all likelihood, it really could have been up to about two years until they come. Jesus may not even have been a baby. He may have been more of a child. Now, who were these wise men? We call them kings in our songs, and we picture them with crowns on their heads. But this is a much later development in Christian thinking. The word magi does not mean kings. Uh, actually, the word magi is the same word we get the word magic from. It's the same root word we get magic from. 
These men are probably stargazers. They're probably more like astrologists. I don't mean astronomers that study the stars. I mean people that read the signs and do horoscopes and that kind of thing. Very, very different. They're very much not Jewish. They're probably actually priests in a religion called Zoroastrianism. And that was a study of signs. And they wanted higher knowledge because bodies in this earth were, were bad. But if you got higher knowledge, you could elevate to higher planes. And so they are definitely not Jewish. And obviously at this point, not Christian. They're probably priests from another religion, and they're almost certainly uh, um, some kind of pagan philosophers. The other misconception that we have in our tradition is the number of the wise men. How many wise men does the Bible say that there are? No, the Bible does not say that there were three. The Bible just says wise men. They had three gifts, and so we often say there are three wise men, but the Bible just says wise men. In the Easter tradition, they believe there were 12 wise men. Okay? That whole tradition says there are 12. Um, in our tradition, we often say three because there's a very early tradition that names these wise men. They say that it's Melchior, a Babylonian scholar, Caspar, a Persian scholar, and Balthazar, probably an Arab or even an Indian scholar. Um, but the, the Bible doesn't actually say three. It doesn't say it at all. It's interesting, though, if these names are true... And if that tradition is true, because they're very different names. They're not Jewish. They're not even Roman names. Babylonian, Persian, and Arab or Indian. These are extreme foreigners for the Jewish people. Okay, when they showed up in Israel, it would have been a very, very strange day when they walked into Jerusalem. This is very common in Matthew, by the way. People who are not Jewish in the book of Matthew tend to recognize Jesus, while people who are Jewish or people who are religious have trouble. The wise men are from the east, although it really, the way the geography works there, they could have been kind of from the northeast, because there's really nothing east of Israel. Uh, but it's a very important path, because you could go up through Iraq. I'll do it for your way. It's backwards for you all. Uh, you could go up through Iraq, and then over towards the east for trade, and then you would come down through Israel and go west to go to Egypt. And so it's sort of considered east and west, even though right in Israel... It goes north and south. So tradition has it them being from somewhere up in Iraq, potentially, uh, maybe even further to the east. Could have been a very, very long trail for them to travel there. Now, the older, tradition, older translations, if you grew up on the King James Bible, it normally would say something about how there are wise men from the east and they saw the star in the east. But I don't know if you understand directions. But if they're from the east and saw a star in the east, why in the world would you go west? <laughs> that phrase, from the east, actually the ESV that we read this morning gets right. It's an idiom meaning from its rising, because the rising, the star rose in the east. So it says, we saw the star when it rose, when it came up in the sky somehow, and then we followed it to the west. Now, apparently, these Zoroastrian priests had collected traditions. They were known for this, collecting prophecies of other people and of other nations. And they knew that something was going to be happen, happening in Israel. They probably had some kind of Old Testament prophecy to go on. And so they start heading towards Israel. And they go to the place where you think a king would be born. Where do you think a king would be born? In the palace of the current king, right? You assume the king's going to be born in the palace. 
When they get there, though, they do not find a person willing that, that knows about this king or really wants a king. They find a very dangerous person named Herod the Great. Now, Herod was not Jewish, uh, but he was assigned by the Roman government to be the king of Israel. Uh, he was probably clinically um, uh, paranoid. And he was scared that anyone was going to take his throne. He had killed his own family members because they were a threat to his throne, at least his wife and probably his son. Okay, Herod, not a good guy at all. Okay, interesting person, though. He actually very, very rigorously followed the Jewish uh, dietary laws. So he would not eat any kind of meat, would not eat any kind of bacon or pork. Uh, in fact, his uh, Roman master, Augustus, used to say, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Okay, Herod would not kill a pig, but he did kill his son. Okay, that's the kind of guy Herod is. So these wise men come in, these foreigners, very strange folk to them, come wandering in and say, where is this person born king of the Jews? And Herod says, I'm the king of the Jews. Who's this other one that you're referring to? The text says that Herod was greatly troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That's how it worked. Okay? If Herod was troubled, everybody better get troubled because you didn't know who was going to make it through the day or not make it through the day. So Herod gets troubled, everybody gets troubled, and he brings the chief priests and scribes together and says, okay, where is this king supposed to be born? They find a rather obscure passage that refers to Bethlehem, and they suppose that maybe this passage says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So he sends the men on their way, but asks them to send word of the child's location so that he may too go and worship them, worship him. He's lying, right? He's lying. He is not going to go. He's going to go visit that child with a sword. And we know, in fact, that he does go and visit a number of children with a sword trying to kill that one child. It's part of the Christmas story. Never makes it into our pageants, right? But that's the kind of guy Herod was. Historically, that's the kind of guy Herod was. I hope you realize then how political this passage is. And as soon as I say political, we think Republican Democrat. But that would have been as foreign in the first century as Chevy and Ford. You just wouldn't have said. But, but this is very much a critique on the politics of their day. Okay, here are these foreigners talking about a new king to the Roman king that's assigned by the Roman emperor. You see? And then they get to find out where this child's going to be born. And the passage even says that... that little child is going to shepherd Israel. I mean, this very tender view of what a king does. It's totally contrary to how Herod views himself as king or how the Roman emperor would have seen himself as an emperor. And here are these chief priests and scribes. They hear about this Messiah to be born. They've been waiting for this Messiah their whole lives. And do you know none of them go to see this baby? They don't even send anybody. They said, oh, that child's probably born in Bethlehem. And then I don't know if they're just scared of Herod, but you would think they would send at least somebody. Okay, let's send one of the interns to go see if there's any truth to the story. But even the religious authority of the day doesn't even, this isn't even a blip on their radar. What do these wise men know? Probably Bethlehem, whatever. We'll figure it out later. Again, this is a theme in Matthew. 
that common people get it, that struggling, sinning people get it, the foreigners get it, but, but the religious leaders, they have trouble with it. So the wise men continue to follow the star in that direction, and the star goes to rest above a house. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this star over the years. Was it some kind of uh, historical phenomenon, astro- astronomical phenomenon? Was it a comet because it was moving? Was it planets that sort of aligned to make this bright thing? Except the text tells us the star rests over a house. Let me ask you a question. If you went out tonight and looked at the stars over your house, could you tell which one was over your house? No, and there's, you have all kinds of light everywhere, so you can't see many stars. So you think in the first century, they go out, see this bright starlit night, and say, that one's over my house. Doesn't work that way. Probably this is some kind of miraculous thing that's guiding them. Not just a star, but they don't know how to describe it. In fact, in the early tradition of the church, it was considered an angel. It was probably an angel that guided them. And so on, on most of your nativity sets, in fact, on the nativity sets in here, you'll find angels over top of the, of the story because it's a representation of maybe this star was actually an angel. So they finally find this child, the star, the angel guides them. They go in the house. They find the baby. The text says they recede. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's the Bible way of saying they were really, really excited. Okay, really, really excited. And they bring out gifts and celebrate. And we know these gifts, gold. Gold is something that we take for granted because you can have gold. There's probably gold jewelry out here right now. This was a time where not everybody had gold. You couldn't afford gold. Um, you couldn't, you know, you know who had gold? Kings had gold. They're very, very wealthy, and the royals had gold. This was a king's ransom given to Jesus. I've often wondered, whatever happened to that ransom? Whatever happened to that? The text never tells us where that gold goes or how he uses that gold. So gold. For a king. Frankincense is a gum resin from trees or bushes that's often used in religious practices. It's often used as incense, and it's also really, really important in Jewish offerings. If you had to offer a bull or a goat, that was one thing, but if you couldn't afford that or you were a farmer, you would offer a grain offering. What they would do is take the grain and pack it into like a cake to burn on the altar. And the main thing that helped that cake of grain stick together was this gummy stuff called frankincense. Frankincense was burned to the Lord all the time. Myrrh is the oddest of the gifts. It is also a gum resin from a tree used in perfumes, used in medicine, used in anointing and healing oil, used in incense some, but in Jesus' day, primarily used in in burial spices. Primarily used in burial spices. And we know from John 19.33, it was actually used on Jesus after he dies on the cross. He is anointed with myrrh. Tradition says these gifts were to represent who Jesus was. Gold for Jesus as king, frankincense for Jesus as God, and myrrh for Jesus as the one who would have to die. And therein lies the epiphany. These wise men reveal to us in their gifts, in their travel, in their pursuit, who this Jesus is. This is the one who is king, who is God, who is Lord, but would suffer on our behalf. Then being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they traveled back another way. There are legends about these men and what they do. They're heroes in certain parts of of the world where they're believed to have gone to spread the news of this child that they learned of. 
Um, there's also graves marking potentially where they were uh, buried, although some of those historically are a little difficult to get around. So here are these wise men who have these amazing insights about Jesus, pursued him for what was probably a, month, a, a journey of months or even years. They are pagan religious leaders, Gentiles, not Jews. By contrast, the king of Israel, the chief priests and the scribes do not recognize Jesus. Even though they're told about him, even though they've been looking at the prophecies their whole life, they don't even go to see if maybe it's him. This is a story of great encouragement for us. Because you and I, as far as I know, are Gentiles. Okay? You're probably not here if you're real Jewish. Okay? We're Gentiles. These are the first Gentile worshipers right away. This is the first church, the first Christian worship service. Nobody's ever worshipped Christ before like this. And it's a sign that, that no matter what your background, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done in your life, you're not so far away that you can't come and worship this Jesus. Isn't that very good news? If you think that you're so far, if you think you've done such terrible things in your life you, that you can't come and find this Jesus and that this Jesus isn't calling you and leading you back, you are wrong. You have bought into some real lies about this Jesus. Because that, Jesus, that love of Jesus was there for these pagan Zoroastrian priests from across the world. It's there for you too. The signs are there to guide you back. But this story should also be a warning for us because we're church people. We're here and we're dressed up a little bit. We took our Sunday morning to be here. And you know who misses Jesus in the story? The church people. The ones who should have recognized him. But they're so caught up in their own anxiety or their own fear. In the craziness of the politics of their day, too caught up in their own religious practice or the anxiety of the world around them that they can't recognize or follow this Jesus. And what's worse, they can't even tell that they missed it. And they go their whole lives. We have story after story of how these men really have trouble figuring out who this Jesus is. So it's a blessing for us, but it's a warning for us too. And you all have a choice. You have a choice with Jesus. Some people seek him, while others hear about him but never really pursue him. They see signs, but they don't really follow. See, epiphany is an invitation at the start of the year to reflect on our own journey with Jesus. Will we get the epiphany? Or like Herod, will we get angry? Or like the priests and scribes, will we not really care? We need to be wise men and women and seek him and recognize who he is because he is calling us and he is leading us always. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you were king, that you are God, that you did suffer for us. Let us realize in a new way in this new year who you are, that we may follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.